Matthew 12, verse 22 to 32. Matthew 12, verse 22 to 32. And I'm going to preach on the sin against the Holy Spirit. And that is the continuing of our series on personal problems. The sin against the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again as dependent children. Just like babies are dependent on their mothers, so we are dependent on you. We're dependent on your word. Like babies long for milk, so we long for the pure spiritual milk. And we pray that we would grow up by it to salvation and that we would become more like our Savior Jesus Christ. Please open our eyes to see wonderful truths out of your law. Amen. Now there's really more than one sin against the Holy Spirit. Uh, for instance, Ephesians 4 says we shouldn't grieve the Spirit. It's possible to grieve Him. It's possible to quench the Spirit in 1 Thessalonians 5. It's possible to resist the Spirit in Acts 7.51. Um, and you can be forgiven for those. Like Paul. Paul resisted. He was part of that group in Acts 7, and yet Paul was saved. And then it's possible to blaspheme the Spirit. Now it's that last one we're going to look at tonight, and it's that last one that cannot be forgiven, as we're going to see in a moment. Um, so what is the sin against the Holy Spirit, and how do you know you've committed it? And it's important to know, because if you don't, you're going to be in total despair. Like a man I heard of about recently... A guy I heard of who um, thought that he had committed the unpardonable sin. He still thinks so, and he thinks that he cannot be forgiven. And he's in absolute despair. So that's why it's very important for us to approach the matter biblically, to understand what does Scripture mean by this, what is this biblical teaching, and then we can respond biblically. So what I'm going to do first, and I'm going to give you the context, and then we'll talk about the sin. Verse 22, Matthew 12. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. And if it's by the, but if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons... Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? Unless he first, first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So, first of all, let's look at the healing, the healing, verse 22. I once spoke to two different people who thinks that 
uh, epileptic fits are always caused by demons. It's not a physical problem. And I used to be an epileptic, but I'm not anymore. Uh, I outgrew the problem when I was 13. I got epileptic fits from, I think, seven years old or maybe a bit earlier to uh, the age of 12, 12 or 13, and never had it since. And, um, and then the person who we spoke to said to my wife, when did I stop having these fits? And she, my wife said when he was 13, and the woman asked, when was your husband saved? And my wife said when he was 13. And then this woman said, see, proves my point. It's a spiritual problem, it's not a physical problem. Now, it's true that demons can cause epileptic fits, like you see in Matthew 17, verse 15 and verse 18. But it's not always the case. Matthew 4, verse 24. It speaks of Jesus healing people of their illnesses, and then we read this word. Uh, they brought him all who were sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. It makes a clear distinction between demon-possessed people there and epileptics. So yes, demons can cause epileptic fits, but it doesn't mean everyone who has them, well, they have some demon in them. But here we do find, in our text, in verse 22, Matthew 12, this man was blind and he was dumb. He couldn't speak or mute because of a demon. And obviously not without God's permission because in Exodus 4 verse 11, God told Moses, when Moses said, but I can't talk, Lord, and I'm slow of speech, I stutter, God said, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So God is still sovereign over those things. And then you see this blind and mute man, it says he was brought to Jesus. Just like you and I, we bring sick people to Jesus in prayer. We pray to the Lord and ask for his mercy. In the same way, these people brought their loved one. In verse 22, they brought him to Jesus and then it said, uh, well, obviously in the hope Jesus would heal him, and Jesus did. Verse 22 said he did heal him. And so he obviously cast out the demon and the man could see and the man could speak. Jesus healed that. Then the response, or the, the reaction, number two, the reaction. So that was the healing. The reaction, verse 23 and 24. And people were really blown away when they saw David Copperfield walking through the Great Wall of China. Now that was just a trickery. It's, uh, your eyes are tricked. Uh, I saw how they did that. I watched the behind-the-scenes thing on YouTube. And uh, it's all just, they're tricking your eyes and... But what, what would people, those people have done who were so amazed when Copperfield walked through the Great Wall, what would they have done if they had seen a real miracle, if they had seen one of Jesus' miracles? Well, the Bible tells us what they would have done. Verse 23, the people were amazed. Uh, the Greek there literally means it's like they're standing back in amazement. Standing back in amazement. They, are, they marvel according to Luke eleven fourteen. When they see this and they wonder, verse 23, is he the son of David? Is he this Messiah that the Old Testament prophesied about, the king from the line of David? Can it be? Well, the people weren't so excited, or the Pharisees at least, in verse 24. They're not excited at all. They don't think Jesus is the Messiah. And actually I read it in a wrong way when I read, did the scripture reading. I almost shouted verse 24. Really, I should have whispered it because it was only in their thoughts that they said that. And verse 25 tells you that. 
Um, so they're thinking, yeah, Jesus, Jesus just casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now, Beelzebul comes from the name Beelzebub in Second uh, Kings 1 verse 2. He's the god of flies, the lord of the flies, uh, meaning that he controls the flies, and so the flies can't bring sicknesses, he keeps them away. And then what the Jews did is they mocked this false god of Ekron, Beelzebub, and they called him Beelzebul. And Beelzebul means god of the dung. And really it's just another name for Satan in this context. The leader of the demons or the prince of demons, verse 24. By Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now that's blasphemy. It's blasphemy to say that Jesus casts out demons by the power of Satan. They'd already said that in chapter 9 of Matthew, verse 34. And according to Mark, they went even further and they say Jesus is possessed by Satan. In Mark 3, verse 22 and verse 30, he's possessed by an unclean spirit like, like the Jews said in John chapter 8. You have a demon. And, and even further in Matthew 10, 25, they said he is Satan. Jesus is Beelzebul. Well, the truth was they were under the power of Satan. These Pharisees, they were under the power of Satan. He had blinded them. They were as blind as the man was in verse 22. They were spiritually blind, though. I think we should take from that that, that it is possible for someone to speak against the devil, and yet at the same time he's blinded by the devil, like they do. We speak against Satan, and yet they the people blinded by Satan. Number three, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this. Number three, the teaching. That's verse 25 to 32. Anyone who's been married for a very long time, later on you start knowing what your spouse thinks. Not always, not always, but sometimes you think, oh, and you think the same thing, or they haven't even said it and you know what they're thinking. And yet you cannot always know what they think. You cannot really read other people's thoughts. No one can. Some people think they can, but they can't. Only God can. Only God knows people's thoughts. Psalm 139 verse 2, where he says of God knowing my thoughts. So when Jesus, in verse 25, knowing their thoughts, they should have clicked, this is the God of Psalm 139. They should have least have understood that he comes from God. If he knows our thoughts. And unfortunately they did not. They did not acknowledge that. But they said he's from the devil. As we saw in verse 24. And then to, to correct their twisted thinking. Jesus now tells two parables. So the first parables are about a kingdom. Or a city or a house. A family. That is divided. And any, any family or city or house where people are constantly fighting, in the end, it's, they're fighting against themselves, they're destroying themselves. And that house is going to fall, that marriage is going to fall, that family is going to fall, that city is going to fall, that empire or country is going to fall, as verse 25 says. And in the same way, verse 26, Jesus says, Satan's kingdom would fall if in, in one breath, or at least... Now Satan tells his demons, he tells the demons, go into these people's lives and destroy their lives. And then the next moment he tells them, no, 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 come out, I cast you out. He's going to destroy his own kingdom, Jesus says. And so if Jesus then, if it's really so, like the Pharisees say, that Jesus is, 
He's casting out demons by the power of Satan. Well, by, by whose power do the Pharisees' disciples do it? Because they've got followers. So their followers, who gives them the power to cast out demons? And they don't even always get it right, as we see in Acts 19. Well, Jesus always gets, gets it right. He's always successful in casting out demons. So are the Pharisees now going to say, oh, you know, our disciples, uh, they fail by the power of the Holy Spirit, but Jesus, he has success by the power of Satan. So suddenly Satan is stronger than the Holy Spirit? And even where, where the Pharisees' disciples, where their followers did cast out demons, as Matthew 7 verse 22 we read of people saying, we cast out demons in your name, even, even if there are people who get it right, well then, just like Jesus, Jesus does the same, he casts out demons, then it must be by the power of the Spirit. And so what's happening is they become your judges, verse 27. They will be your judges. So these, the Pharisees, their followers, are becoming the judges of the Pharisees because indirectly they're saying, you know, Jesus is casting out demons by the power of God. Or they're saying, oh, Jesus casts out demons by the power of Satan. But then they, they are judging themselves. They are condemning themselves. Because they do the same. They also cast out demons. And by whose power are they doing it? So if Jesus then, in his human nature, we know he's God also. But if in his human nature, he trusted in the, the Spirit to give him power, to empower him to cast out demons, well, then it shows he's sovereign over the demons. Verse 28. If it's by the Spirit of God then I, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So it shows. And it's easy for Jesus to cast out demons. It's by his finger that he does it. Luke chapter 12, or 11, verse 20. By the finger of God I cast out demons. Just like by the finger of God, Moses did the miracles in Egypt. It was God's finger. The finger of God created the moon and the stars in Psalm 8. Jesus put his fingers in a deaf man's ear and healed him. It's like he's saying, this is the work of my fingers. It's easy. And the fact that he cast out these demons also shows that he towers above them. He is over them. He is the king above the demons. And his kingdom has come, verse 28. The kingdom of God is in their midst. Jesus had said, the kingdom of God is come upon you. Verse 28. The Pharisees didn't see it that way. They expected a Messiah. They expected a king who would come on a white horse and conquer the Romans. But Jesus' works are greater than that. Jesus doesn't just conquer the Romans. Jesus conquers Satan. Jesus conquers the powers of darkness. And it's, it's a pity that the Pharisees couldn't see it and that they denied it. The second parable is of a strong man. He lives in a palace, according to Luke 10. And he's got all these weapons, Luke 10 tells us, to defend himself and to defend his riches. So anyone who wants to conquer this strong man needs to be stronger than he is and then bind him and then take away his weapons and then he can plunder his house and then divide the spoils. Verse 29. Can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So what does this parable mean? Well, Satan is the strong man, and Jesus is the stronger man. Jesus binds Satan. Jesus binds these demons 
by casting them out, by dying on a cross and conquering them, and by rising from the dead. And this all it was prophesied by Isaiah in chapter 49, verse 24 and 25. And now Jesus comes and does this. Colossians 2, he binds his enemies. Verse 15. And we then, well, we are the, the ones, when Jesus plunders the house, we are the ones that are taken as treasure. He takes us out of Satan's house. Isaiah 53 verse 12. He divides the spoil. He brings us from darkness to light. He brings us from the power of Satan to God. Uh, he breaks the work of the devil. These are all references in the Old and New Testament. And so now we work with Jesus. Through preaching. Through missions. Through evangelism. To bring people from the power of Satan to God. So that they can be freed from the strong man taken away from him. Now the Pharisees didn't want to help Jesus in this. They didn't want to work with Jesus to bring lost people, to gather the lost, to gather sinners to Christ. And so in reality, they were against Jesus. They were working against him, like someone who scatters the sheep on the mountains. Verse 30, whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever doesn't gather, gather with me scatters. Ezekiel 34, 6, scattering the sheep on the mountains. And anyone, anyone really, if you're not actively for Jesus, and if you're not working with Jesus to win people for the kingdom of God, uh, whether you're an evangelist or whether you pray for the conversion of the lost or you share your testimony or you win people through shining the light of a holy life or you um, give money for the spread of, spreading of the gospel, well, in that case, if you're not doing these things for Jesus, you're working against him. And you're working with the devil. The devil who wants to break up the work of Christ. Verse 30 says that. If you're not gathering with him, you are scattering. So, in other words, you don't have to be a Muslim or a Satanist to be against Jesus. You can simply be a moral church-going person, but you are not following Jesus with absolute devotion and commitment, or you're not involved in one way or the other, one way or another, you're not involved in the work of Christ to win people to him. And um, when Jesus says, then you're on the devil's side and you're working against him. And the Lord can forgive you for this. Verse 31, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people. So you can be forgiven for this. You can be forgiven for any sin, for any blasphemy, verse 31 tells us. If you confess your sin, if you repent of your sin, if you ask for forgiveness, that's the biblical pattern, 1 John 1 verse 9. Uh, and that goes for any sin. It goes for whether you've murdered someone or committed sexual sin like David did, whether you've denied Jesus like Peter did, or whether you've lived a very reprobate or very evil life, a, a reckless life, an immoral life like the Samaritan woman, whether you were involved in the occult, in Satanism or witchcraft like the Ephesians in Acts 19, verse 19, whether you worshipped idols like the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, or whether you were homosexual, whether you were a robber or a drunkard, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 to 11, whatever sin, even, even someone who thought Jesus is just a man and he, he cursed the name of Jesus, 
He blasphemed the name of Jesus. That person can be forgiven. 32a, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. In other words, you thought Jesus is just a human. Like Paul did. Paul blasphemed the name of Jesus. 1 Timothy 1, verse 13. Or like the thief on the cross. Both of them blasphemed the name of Jesus, according to Matthew 27. And then one of them repented, according to Luke 23. Or Jesus' brothers. They said, he's mad. He's gone out of his mind. He's lost his mind. Mark 3.21, they spoke against Jesus, thinking he's just a human. But they were forgiven. Jesus' brothers were saved. Acts 1 verse 14. And then I've got a list of other passages here. Cross-references. The one sin that cannot be forgiven, verse 31, second part, blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Verse 32b, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. So what is the sin and why will the Lord not forgive it? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That is what the Pharisees did in the previous verses. What they did is they ascribed the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. They could clearly see Jesus is the Messiah by simply looking at the miracles he did in front of their eyes. They could see it. And yet they denied that. And they said he does these works through Satan. So how do people do this today? especially because Jesus is not standing here in the flesh and doing miracles in front of our eyes. How do people do it today? <clears throat> well, they do it when they hear the gospel, when they realize the gospel is true, when they see how the gospel changes the lives of people, when they see how God answers prayer, when they see, when they see how God works powerfully in the congregation. And in spite of this, they harden their hearts against Him and they say, all of that is the work of Satan. Now, please learn... Please learn, blasphemy against the Spirit is not a single act. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a continual hardening of the heart. A continual stiffening of the neck. Resisting of the truth of someone who can clearly see Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Lord. And yet they turn around and say, he's not the true Messiah. He is an instrument of Satan. Like in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6 and chapter 10. Louis Berkhoff, a systematic theologian, says, the sin itself, in other words, the blasphemy against the Spirit, the sin itself consists not in doubting the truth, nor in a simple denial of the truth, but in a contradiction of the truth that goes contrary to the conviction of the mind. You know this is true. To the illumination of the conscience. Your conscience tells you it's true. And even the verdict of the heart. You know it. And you resist. In committing that sin, man willfully, maliciously, intentionally attributes what is clearly recognized as the work of God to the influence and operation of Satan. <coughs> it's nothing less. This sin is nothing less than a decided slandering of the Holy Spirit. An audacious, an audacious declaration that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of hell. That the truth is a lie. And that Christ is Satan. And how can God forgive such a one? How can God forgive someone who continually resists the Holy Spirit, especially if the Holy Spirit wants to show that person Jesus is the Messiah? And how can you be forgiven? If you will not come to Jesus for forgiveness, but you reject Jesus. After you know He is the true one. He is the Messiah. 
So please, I want you to understand. Blasphemy against the Spirit. This is not a case of someone who wants to repent, but now the Lord does not want to forgive them. No, this is a case of someone who knows Jesus is the one. And yet they harden themselves against him and they will not come to him to be forgiven. And it's of that person that we learn. God gives them up to the hardness of their own hearts so that later on they can no longer repent and they do not want to repent. And it doesn't matter how much intellectual conviction you try, you try to convince the person intellectually, it doesn't matter if the person sees a miracle happen in front of his eyes, not even prayer will change this person's heart. Jeremiah 7, 16 and 1 John 5, verse 16. <coughs> it's exactly because this person will not repent and cannot repent that the Lord will not forgive the person. Because unless you repent, you cannot be forgiven. And even if the person is in hell, there's no forgiveness. Verse 32, the end will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. John Piper says, if God says to you, never will I forgive you, then in a million ages from now, his verdict will be like granite. If all the mountains of the earth were wearing down at the rate of one millimeter every thousand years, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will still be unforgiven when the face of the earth is as smooth, smooth as a billiard ball. It is, it is an eternally unforgivable sin. End quote. Why will the Lord not forgive such a person? And it says he will not forgive him in hell in the age to come. Well, like the rest of people in hell, this person keeps on hardening himself against God. Mark 3 verse 29. It's an eternal sin. Revelation 16, 10 and 11 speaks of other sinners in hell. They keep on blaspheming God from hell and cursing his name. They will not repent. And that's why they will never be forgiven. Because they will never repent. They hardened. No one who blasphemes the Spirit will later on turn around and feel really sorry for his or her sin. They are so hardened. They do not even fear. Perhaps I've done this sin. So if you, if you are sorry for your sin, if you want to be forgiven, if you are afraid, oh, I think I may have done this sin and I'm so sorry, then you haven't done this sin. <coughs> because people who commit this sin are not sorry. And they never will be. They are sorry for the consequences of their sin, but not for their sin. But... If you are rebellious against God, you start becoming rebellious and you're busy with sin in your life, listen, you are in a dangerous spot. Jeremy Taylor said about sin in, in such a person's life, first it startles him, the sin, <gasps> then it becomes pleasing, then delightful, then frequent, then habitual, then confirmed, then man is impenitent, he will not repent, then obstinate, he becomes hardened, then resolved, I will never repent, then damned. Now, I'm not trying to tell you that a true Christian can commit this sin. A true Christian cannot commit this sin because no true believer can lose his salvation. No one can pluck you from my hand, Jesus said. No one can pluck you from my Father's hand because the Father is greater than all. Jesus said, those who come to me, I will never cast out. Romans 8, those whom he, has, he foreknew and then he predestines and then it goes through the thing and then it ends with he glorified. So if God has chosen you and 
go through the list and you've been justified and so on, then you will be glorified. Nothing can separate you from his love, nothing in all of creation, including yourself. And God has given you the spirit as a guarantee of the inheritance. So it's guaranteed. You will get it if you're a Christian. You began the good work in you. will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. And First Peter 1 verse 5, God keeps you by his power through faith. But it is possible, although a true Christian can't commit the sin, it is possible that someone who professes to be a Christian, but is not, that person can commit the unpardonable sin. They went out from us because they were never of us, 1 John 2.19, in short. So let us be watchful. Let's be watchful. And let us persevere in faith. And let us remain near to Jesus, near to his word. Here's a poem on the unpardonable sin by J.A. Alexander. There is a time, we know not when, a point, we know not where, that marks the destiny of men to glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. To pass that limit is to die, to die as if by stealth. It doesn't quench the beaming eye nor fade the glow of health. The conscience may be still at ease, the spirit light and gay, gay meaning happy there, the old use. That which is pleasing still may please and care be thrust away. But on that forehead, God has set indelibly a mark, unseen by man, for man as yet is blind and in the dark. And yet the doomed man's path below, like Eden, may have bloomed. He did not, does not, will not know, nor feel that he is doomed. He thinks or feels that all is well and every fear is calmed. He lives, he dies, he wakes in hell. Not only doomed, but damned. Oh, where is this mysterious bourne by which our path is crossed? Beyond which God himself has sworn that he who goes is lost. How far may we go on in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does hope end? And where begin the confines of despair? An answer from the skies is sent. Ye that from God depart, while it is called today, repent and harden not your heart. Oh, come today. Do not delay. Too late it soon will be to fly, to Jesus fly, for mercy cry, he waits to welcome thee. Heavenly Father, we pray to you that you would protect us against hardening our own hearts, against hardening, being hardened through sin. And we plead that you would protect this congregation, that no one in our midst may be guilty of committing the sin of hardening themselves and receiving an incredible punishment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.